Welcome to Season 2 of The ACO Show. We are back and we'll be bringing you new episodes every other week. We have a great season of guests lined up, both people from Allidade, a growing company working to improve the delivery of healthcare across the U.S., and guests from outside of Allidade who bring their own perspective on the healthcare landscape in America and around the world. To start off our second season, Joe Schonkweiler and Josh Israel spoke with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, a nonprofit news service that covers healthcare. Please note that Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente Health Plans. Dr. Rosenthal was previously a practicing physician as well as a longtime correspondent for the New York Times. She is the author of the best-selling book on American sickness, how healthcare became big business and how you can take it back. Thanks to our producer, Aaron Wing. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Joe Schunkweiler, our lead adoption and training here at Allidade, and we're very, very pleased to have Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal on with us today. Dr. Rosenthal is the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News and the author of one of my very favorite books about medicine, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Dr. Rosenthal, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And I'm Josh Israel, a psychiatrist and medical director at Allidade. Dr. Rosenthal, you have seen American healthcare from many different roles. You still practice as a physician. You started out in clinical medicine and transitioned over to being a, a journalist and, and real opinion leader in the field. So can you just talk us through that transition? Uh, sure. You know, I, I don't practice anymore. I practiced in the uh, from the 80s and into the 90s. I trained in internal medicine and then worked in an emergency room at uh, what's now New York Presbyterian Hospital. And I guess um, what happened to me, my, my kind of evolution that led to this book was, you know, even then in the 90s, I, I saw things in the ER that, that bothered me, like people who weren't getting the treatment they should have, people who were using the ER. Um, but by and large, in the 90s, people like me who had good health insurance were getting really good care and not complaining that much. Um, but what happened then was I went overseas for about 10 years and experienced a bunch of other health systems. I got stitches in Rome where, um, you know, I went to the best hospital in Rome and got my head stitched up after an accident. Uh, and it cost 112 euros, I think, or 130 bucks. I broke my wrist in Stockholm. I was covering international issues at the time as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. And I, I uh, broke my, fell jogging, broke my wrist, uh, seen by a fancy orthopedist in, in Stockholm. And he examined the wrist, uh, x-rayed it, casted it, and apologized for charging me $400 about for all that. And I was thinking, okay, this is, the, this is normal. And then I moved back to the U.S. in about uh, 2007. And I'd heard that healthcare had gotten really expensive and more confusing and that our policies now had deductibles and co-payments and in-network and out-of-network. And that was stuff that, you know, really didn't exist as the norm in, in the 90s. And, um, you know, I always tell, tell people that in some ways this book grew out of my um, $12,000 screening colonoscopy, which I didn't pay for, but we all pay for, of course. And, right. and uh you know, it was built in this crazy way where half of that fee was for a um, a, a $6,000 facility fee for an operating room at a major New York hospital that I didn't need for my colonoscopy. And I started thinking, wow, this is nuts. 
so then back at the Times, I did a series called Paying Till It Hurts, which was about uh, all these things that were going on in healthcare, uh, billing, uh, the price, the cost. And, you know, it just kept getting worse and worse. And so at the end of that series, I thought, wow, I have so many terrible stories um, that patients have sent to me about the different kinds of problems. And I came to see um, American medicine as kind of like a minefield for patients of different ways they could not afford needed care and other ways in which they weren't getting needed care because it, it, it was not profitable for anyone to do it. So I think to me, um, that led to the book. I thank all the patients who wrote me about their stories because that provided the jumping off point for each chapter of the book. What I love so much about the book is that it provides this historical perspective with all the policy mixed in and all the implications of how that evolved. It reminds me very much of people on this show are tired of me mentioning uh, two of my very favorite writers and thinkers on this, Paul Starr and Uwe Reinhardt, um, yeah. who I had as professors um, in grad school when I was transitioning out of clinical medicine. Um, but that mix of the policy, the evolution, and then into practical recommendations for patients on how to navigate that. This is such a complex system. And I really love that mix in the book. And I think you struck the perfect balance. Um, well, well, I think, you know, for me, the book was really answering questions that I wanted to know, um, having once been a physician in a, in a different kind of medical world, and now being a, a user and a patient and a journalist, like, okay, you know, I knew from my New York Times series that half of my colonoscopy was from this nouveau thing, you know, this innovation called a facility fee, which, of course, right. is a billing innovation, not a a medical innovation. And, um, but I didn't know how we got facility fees. So, you know, when I was doing the series, I would call doctors in other countries, uh, in Germany and Switzerland, and I would say like, well, what's the facility fee for a colonoscopy? And they would go like, what's that? You know, well, if you do a colonoscopy, you need a room. Why would you charge for the room? Right. So, um, and that's what I discovered in, in, and that's why it's kind of historical. I wanted to understand, and history being the last 20 years, how we got to this crazy place that we are today that no one really likes anymore. And that's the big and important difference from the 90s, I think, that no one likes their insurance, no one likes their health care. Um, they may like the medical care they get, but the process is agonizing, both for patients and physicians. And so that gives me hope that it's time for change. Yeah, the the facility fee you know discussion in particular is something we have here frequently at Allidade. It's part of the reason that I have, um, I think, required is a strong word, but really encouraged the folks that are on my teams to read the book to get that underlying why of why this is that way as we try to um, to impact that system. Um, could you sum up just a, a couple thoughts on, on what you see as what's really wrong with the system today? You mentioned the prices, um, but is, is it just the prices or is it, is it everything else feeding into that? Well, I think, you know, the underlying problem is, um, and I, I hate to use this as a pejorative term because it doesn't have to be the business of medicine. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I think when I was practicing medicine and until very recently, 
um, what drove how we get our care was was what was medically the right thing to do. And then slowly, what I saw in researching the book was from eh, around 2000 on, the business of medicine is on the front burner and the, the medicine of medicine is on the back burner. So we do things um, because they they follow business values, which means, um, you know, they have good return on investment, uh, they make money, um, they're profitable, they're efficient, but not in a efficient for patient necessarily, but efficient for the business of medicine, the system. So, you know, yeah, medical records may be efficient for billing, but uh, and electronic medical records. But when my husband needs his x-ray transferred from one physician to another, they can't do that. Yet. So, right, they've been designed for business efficiency, not, not what's good for patient care. Right. So I think that's the underlying problem. And um, when you follow that down the road, you end up with this kind of crazy system where, you know, new medical devices are coming with advice on return on investment, like how many times you need to use these to make your money back for buying this rather than, uh, you know, which patients might most benefit from this this new device. And, and I think uh, we've just gone so off the deep end in that direction now that our care is governed by the business of medicine rather than the the the, the profession of medicine. I, and I would that's why I called the book and how you can take it back. And I I guess I should have said how we can take it back because I think it's a a joint endeavor. <laughs> if you were going to make an addendum to your book, what do you think has changed in significant ways since it was published in two thousand seventeen? Well, um, in the system of medicine, I think not a whole lot, unfortunately. I think there's a lot more interest in new ideas, a lot of talk about new ideas, a lot more hand-wringing about the problems, which is really gratifying to see. Um, but I think some of the easy solutions are frankly, or some of the most efficient, if you want to do it, put it that way, system, uh, solutions are um, political. And um, when you look at things like surprise billing laws, which, uh, you know, there's a bipartisan bill in Congress that seems to be moving forward pretty well. But um, to me, that that can't even be passed for sure. And it has, has faced a lot of resistance at the state level is a sign of real dysfunction because who doesn't believe that, you know, someone unknowingly going, uh, having an out-of-network anesthesiologist at an in-network hospital shouldn't have to pay for it. That's just wrong. <laughs> but so I think there's tons of, of resistance to that. Um, on the bright side, I, I think things like surprise billing laws are now, um, uh, surprise bills are now in the limelight. Um, but I don't, know that that's because we've been much better at dealing with them. I think it's because it's become a more common practice that a lot of stuff that flied, that used to fly under the radar is now um, front and center. I hope because some of us journalists and some of the physicians who talk about this stuff have, have uh, brought these, these practices that make uh, physicians uncomfortable, good guy physicians, and, uh, you know, uh, and patients suffer are, are, are being are front and center now. Now we have to do something about it. The other big thing, which I think is really important for everyone to think about, is um, 
you know, two years ago, I don't think anyone would have said, wow, we're going to be in this world where we're debating, uh, you know, a public option or Medicare for all as a kind of serious proposal. And what that says to me is that things have gotten so bad that people are really willing in a way they weren't before to kind of trash everything and go in a really different direction. And I, I you know, when I'm talking at, um, y- you know, big hospitals or uh, medical societies or uh, talking to insurers and pharma people when I'm on panels, uh, now I think like, wow, you know, if we don't figure out, if you guys don't figure out a better solution and protect patients from some of the costs, uh you're going to get, you know, uh, some. You're going to get your worst nightmare, which is, um, you know, a national health system. I'm not saying I, that's my worst nightmare, but I think we've kind of reached a tipping point where tweaking around the edges is not going to solve the the level of problem and the acuity of the problem that many many patients are are facing today. You're mentioning both the inertia of the political system and the potential of it. In your book, you reference several private companies, including Allidade. Are there some ways you think that the private sector is especially well-suited to address some of these problems? I mean, certainly it's more nimble, right? I assume this is why um, you all exist, that you you can find opportunities in this crazy system and hope to bring um, rationality and better patient care into a world of chaos. Um, I, I think the incentives for doing that are 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 there, but they could be a lot stronger. And and um, the incentives for doing badly, and you know, making a whole lot of money by going out of all networks and just charging whatever you want, the reward is still much greater in our current system. So I do think there's tremendous potential in in the private sector if the private sector is motivated um, by if and where the, the private sector is motivated by better patient care, um, more attention to, you know, health rather than, uh, you know, just doing stuff that's that's uh, money-making. And um, so, yes, and I assume that's why, you know, uh, that, that triad, J.P. Morgan Chase and um, Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon are getting into this stuff because, they know in the private sector there are levers for doing better. I'm not quite sure they know what they are, but intuitively as business people, they know that what we're doing now is nuts. So I think there's huge potential. What worries me about private sector investment is that so much of it now seems to be going to, um, you know, an, an app to, to treat mental illness, uh, things like that, that or, or, or kind of new devices, which... Um, I don't think, I mean, I'm not anti-technology. I think technology is an important part of medicine going forward, but the notion that it will replace the kind of art of medicine and human care and interactions um, is quite disturbing to me. So I think if you're not from a medical world, you think you can think of that as a quick fix, and of course it's cheap, but... um, I always remind people that the first AI program was a fake psychiatrist called Eliza. And, you know, it appeared to be doing psychotherapy, but it really wasn't. It was just giving remote responses that might conceivably be not even helpful. They were just, they sounded like a shrink. So, you know, we work 
in the accountable care organization or ACO mm -hmm. world. Um, could you, do you have any opinions on how that could play into this or value-based care more generally? Does that have the potential uh, to, to really shift the system? Yeah, of course, of course it does. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I'm, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm not, I'm not an endorser of one path or another. And I think they're, you know, genuinely the reason I wrote the solutions I did the way I did in the book is because I'm not someone who says, here's the problem and here is the answer. I, I'm not an answers person. Um, I think there could be many solutions and, or, and, and many could work simultaneously. Um, so I think the notion of an ACO and value-based care driven by People who, who really emphasize the care, you know, I'm, I'm very into the idea that these things should be physician-led, and it distresses me when they're often um, led by people who have no background in medicine and are looking at the numbers rather than at uh, how can we dispense better care. Um, so I think there's tremendous um, logical appeal in value-based care. The, the part of the, the challenge is um, I think some people will do it for all the right reasons. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm, you know, as I, I mentioned in the book, I'm an admirer of Validate. Um, so, um, but I think a whole lot of people will try and reap the financial incentives for not very good reasons. And it's all about how and why you're doing what you do to me. To date, a lot of the work and innovation in value-based care and outcomes-based care has focused on providers and health systems. It doesn't mm -hmm. address patients directly. Do you think there yeah. is any role that patients should play? Should those of us who work in the value-based care world be speaking more directly to patients? Is, is that realistic? Well, I, I do think it is, but I, I think there's a, a, you know, a missed opportunity here because um, some of it is not, you know, we tend to, when we say, when, <laughs> When health systems speak to patients, it tends to be like you get a questionnaire or you have one of those happy face things mm -hmm. like, did you, right. did, were you happy with the service? Or we, we say, you know, did you like your wait time or, you know, what's, you know, I, or sometimes useful things like what's important to you, what kind of activities are important to you to get back to when you have physical therapy. But I, I think part of, of, of speaking to patients is, not just asking for like simple survey answers, but trying to talk to them. We are, we, uh, is patient education, like having people trust you, developing that trust, and which means they will trust you when you say, you know, I know, you know, Joe down the street had his knee replaced, but that's not what you need, you know, trust us. And I think the problem now is U.S. patients having lived in this health system for um, and, and in this, you know, quick do something, go to the surgery, get the scan right away system for 15 years will feel like if they're not getting all that stuff, they're, they're not getting good care. And I think a big missing element is kind of dialing that, that back. So patients trust their providers and trust your provider when he says or she says, you know, um, you don't really need an MRI. You know, I, I know you've you've had a headache, but we know that that sinus is there and we don't have to get a scan. And I think I always emphasize to, to providers and to employers, 
the missing component in wellness education is teaching people that wellness isn't about, it's not just about a step counter. It's about understanding why doing less is sometimes doing more. So you don't have that, you know, patient satisfaction like, oh, the doctor didn't get any blood tests, so, you know, I'm unhappy. My mom says that, you know, why didn't my doctor get me blood tests? Um, so I think that's an important component, and I think that comes from the fact that over time people have learned not to trust the medical profession, and I think that's really, really sad. Yeah, I, you know, that's something there are many physicians um, and former providers um, or current providers who are in the Allidade universe, and the trust piece is something that, you know, I personally have come back to many times and, and how you can be a trusted partner for physicians, but also for their patients throughout that process. Uh, and, and sticking with that theme for a second, you know, many of our listeners um, on this podcast are doctors or other healthcare providers. And I love that you segment the whole healthcare universe in, in American sickness so well and so clearly, including going right at providers and, and talking mm -hmm. about their role in that. So in addition uh, to everybody reading the book, which they absolutely should, what should, what should providers know about their role in fixing or perpetuating uh, dysfunction in our system? Well, you know, I, I often, you know, I think I say somewhere in the book that like, boy, you know, patients, you're frustrated dealing with this medical system and you only have to deal with it when you're sick. You know, imagine what it's like to be a, a, a good primary care doctor trying to deal with it 24-7. And I, I hear from a lot of people in that universe, too. And, and it's a real challenge because, of course, you know, they're, they're, they have to do all this EMR stuff. They do their notes at night. They have less time to see with to spend with patients. In some ways, the the financial incentives go against everything that's meaningful for many physicians in terms of getting to know patients, spending time with them, earning trust. Um, so I I, I think I. You know, I sympathize tremendously. It must be really hard to to feel the joy of medicine in, if you're practicing in a uh, an environment that's hostile to that. And I'm hoping some some groups like yours can um, help change that. Um, but I, and I think you know, physicians should where they can if they work in a hospital. You know, sounds sounds crazy, but you know, speak up. Um, don't they? They often feel like they're cogs in a system. That you know, what can I do? I can't get prices anyway. I can't find out. You know, what different scanners are charging. Um, this is where I think government should help, and and employers should help. You know, demanding a, a level of transparency that will help physicians prescribe and test more sensibly. Um, but I, I think they need to coalesce and as groups, you know, speak up about their needs because there's a lot. I, I know it's hard because everyone's really busy and under the gun right now. But um, I think there needs to be an effort by physician-led groups to to um, bring back what I always loved about medicine, which is the, 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 the you know, the humanity in it. There's a science, but also I would never be a lab scientist. I liked the fact that medicine, you know, combined science with 
humanity and dealing with people. So so we're heading into election season. Seems like it actually never ended from the last one. <laughs> yeah. You know, what do you think we might be looking at, given the, all the potential changes from that? Well, I think, you know, one thing that's interesting that has happened during the Trump administration kind of quietly is there there is more of a um, more transparency out there. I mean, we know a little bit more about hospital charge masters. There's been these kind of fledgling efforts, which I think are important to continue, not because they're so valuable in, a, in, in and of themselves. You know, I don't think patients... It's just a lot to ask people to shop around. But I think it's giving us some insight into some of the crazy amounts of money that are being charged for not very high-value care and how we can get rid of that. So I think at a practical level, that will be really important to see you know, what uh, a group like HHS can do and what groups, um, some of the employer groups can do or are doing in terms of purchasing care for their employers and and direct employees and directing them to value-based care. At a larger level, you know, I think we're very much at at a a tipping point where some things that weren't um, on the table before are in a real way now. Um, You know, there is this Medicare, a public option that's coming up in a lot of states and nationally, which a lot of the Democratic candidates seem to be coalescing around. Um, And I'm again, I'm not saying I'm for or against, but if you're, you know, if you're saying we want to test how good medicine can be, well, if you put something like Medicare out there as a public option, then... Everyone else has to say, you know, hey, we have to be better than that for our patients. So it's an interesting way to kind of put a bar out there and let the market work. And I think, you know, it might even make Medicare better because it would have to directly compete with uh, the private world. I don't know. It's just an interesting uh way to kind of test all the narratives about private versus public and which is which is superior and I do it does look like the democrats are coalescing around something of that order now would the public option be a medicare type public option as is being proposed in Washington state or a medicaid type public option as is being proposed in New Mexico I'm not sure but I think we're at a point where a lot of the low-level insurance plans, the bronze plans in particular, are not as good as Medicaid. That's what we're hearing from patients over and over again. I have crappy insurance. I was happier two years ago when I was unemployed and on Medicaid. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, uh, despite all the good things the the ACA did, um, there's still a lot of ways for patients to get really caught either without the physician they need or, you know, with bills for $200,000 that they didn't ask for. So I, I do think, gosh, these these holes need to be plugged and plugged fast. Well, Dr. Rosenthal, um, I think it's going to be an exciting time ahead, uh, and hopefully we'll see some, some fixes to the system. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, and I have to once again say to everyone listening in American Sickness, how healthcare became big business and how you can take it back. Uh, excellent, excellent book. And I, I can't recommend enough. Thank you.